Hello. All right. Good morning, everyone. Good morning, Sierra Bible Church. Go ahead and take your seats. Welcome. If we haven't met this morning, my name is Amy. I'm part of the staff here. Come on in. I should be part of the worship team. Uh, good morning. Hello, Laura. All right, let's get going. Oh, Mavis, hello, hello. Oh, you got your envelope. Yes, thank you. Thank you. All right, enough side chatter, all right? So moving on, again, my name is Amy. Welcome to Sierra Bible Church. Uh, if you are visiting, there is information about our church in that seat pocket in front of you. You can get information about the happenings throughout the week. Um, we also have an info booth, and you can connect with us after service with any questions that you might have. Our offering envelopes are also in that pocket, and our offering boxes are in the back. If you wanted to drop a uh, contribution to our mission here at Sierra Bible Church, you can do that. I do want to highlight a couple of things before we keep going this morning. Uh, one of them I mentioned last week, and that one is about our men's game night. I mentioned last week that this is going to be off-site. However, things change. And so this is actually, our first one is this Saturday. It's going to be here at Sierra Bible Church, next door in Ray Hall. Uh, the reason for that is we want to just get a feel for who's coming and what it's like. And before we uh, take it off site, we want to get a good idea of, of, uh, of all that. And so that is here. We are asking you to register men. And so if you're going to be here, please let us know. All right, that's this Saturday, the 24th. Um, in a couple weeks' time, we also have a baby shower coming up. If you are unfamiliar with uh, our baby showers at SBC, basically every time a family has their a new baby here at SBC, which could be their very first baby, or it could be, you know, number eight. And then, but if it's their first child here at our church, then we want to celebrate that and just come alongside that family. And so we have a couple, Hayden and Megan, they're having their first baby. It's a baby girl. Yes, and so that is in a couple weeks' time. Everyone's invited. We just connect. We have some food. We celebrate the, the new baby and the couple, and there are no baby shower games. For those of you that care, I care deeply because I don't participate in baby shower games. Okay? I don't. All right, and then number three, we have our date night. This is sponsored by our men's ministry, and it's our, our date night is March 8th. What this is is that if you want to go on a date with your spouse and you have children that need to be watched, you can drop off your kids here on March 8th at 6 o'clock and you get an entire two hours to do date things. And then you need to come back, okay, and pick up your children at 8 p.m. Okay, so this is not an extended getaway. However, it is an opportunity for you to get some time away. We will watch your children. We'll give them snacks. We will pop, we're not going to feed them dinner, so just make note. Feed them before, if they need to eat, then please feed them before you drop them off. Um, again, register for this so we know who's coming and we can ha have enough sitters uh, for you. Um, and with that, if you are in junior high this morning, we do have a gathering for you. And if you're in 6th, 7th, or 8th grade, you can rise up out of your little spots. There, there they are. There they go. And you may exit the, the room. There's the young youth of America. All right. Thank you so much for being here. And here's Pastor Jesse. Hi, good morning. 
Welcome to Sierra Bible Church. My name is Jesse, as Amy mentioned. <clears throat> if we haven't had a chance to meet, uh, we're really glad you're here. Um, there's a good chance somebody's been praying for you to come, and you're here. So if that happens to be you, uh, those individuals actually love you. So I'm glad they brought you. So thanks for coming. Uh, maybe you're online checking things out, and uh, you're seeking after who maybe God is and the idea of God. That's what we're here for, to help kind of answer those questions. Uh, so again, welcome. Glad to have you. Uh, we are going to be in the Bible as we are every week. That is our sacred, most holy text. We believe God's given it to us as a tremendous gift. And so I want you to turn to Romans 12 if you have your Bible or your app or whatever you use. If you don't have a Bible, we have some wonderful uh, ushers here to hand you out, uh, to hand you, uh, hand you out, to hand uh, a Bible to you. <clears throat> um, so... I, I'll say this, and I said it in the first gathering. Uh, I think I've worked out a little bit of my my emotion in the first gathering a little bit. That may not make sense to any of you. You can tune into the first one if you want to online. But I I stay I started out the message this morning in the first gathering, just basically stating that uh, there's a piece of me this morning that wishes I could take my notes, uh, give them to someone else, and and let them preach to me because the text is something I need. I don't know if you can relate to this. I think you probably can, but when you come across something in Scripture and you, you see it in a unique light and then you recognize that you don't really live up to what is in that text. Uh, and this morning is one of those texts that I want more of in my life, in the way that I live, in the way that I treat people, the way that I parent, uh, the way that I... I am a husband to my wife. I want to embody what is in this text. Uh, and, and then my heart even kind of, I know you don't know the subject matter yet, and you're like, what is he talking about? But my heart is, this morning is that I really want some of these things that we've talked about. I don't know I say I want. I believe the Lord desires us to grow in a lot of these texts that we've been in the last several weeks. Which is to say, we, we've been in this series called Our House, which is just a fancy way of saying, what does it mean to be God's people? What is the church supposed to look like? I'm really going to cover two things this morning, and that is that we're to be a people of mercy. That, that, that's part of what we're supposed to be. Uh, but we're also supposed to be a people of worship. So I'll ask you a question. First of all, if you were to have a young person in your life, uh, like I do, I have four of them. I don't own all four of them, but they are mine, if that makes sense. They're my children. Uh, and, and I think about this particular text, and, 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 and as I think about how do I apply it to them, one of the questions I think I would want to ask my kids, and one of the questions I want to ask you this morning from the text is, what do you build your life on? Like if you build a foundation of a house, what's the foundation supposed to be? So like I said, we're going to be in Romans chapter 12, and so it's important that we have a little bit of context of Romans chapters 1 through 11. I'm not going to, obviously, for time's sake, I'm not going to give you a detailed synopsis of, of, of those chapters. But what you basically need to know that Paul has been presenting in Romans is, first of all, he, he speaks to Christians. Uh, he's speaking to Christians here, but he's also speaking uh, to, to those who don't know him. And in chapters 1 through 4, essentially what he states, his premise, his thesis, is humanity needs rescuing. Maybe you've heard the saying before within Christianity, the world is sick, and that includes you. Just some of us are aware of it. What really separates Christianity 
from the non-Christian isn't that we are somehow more righteous because we are not. Part of the series we covered in the first session several weeks ago was on holiness. My attempt on that was to share that holiness matters to God. But really, apart from the imputed, given holiness that God gives us, none of us really have hope of holiness at all. Uh, and, and here we are in this place, and, and, and he shares with us that humanity in chapters 1 through 4 is in need of rescuing. We're all desperately sick, and God is the one, by his grace, that sends a rescuer. And the rescuer happens to be God himself in human flesh. And the reason that God came in human flesh is so that no one in the room can say that God doesn't understand our plight, that God doesn't get our pain, that God doesn't understand the fracturedness that is in every single soul. So Paul says, hey, you need rescuing. After you're rescuing in chapters 5 through 8, he kind of really talks about the new community of God what it means to be, again, the people of God, the topic that we are on this morning. And then he talks about how we as a church are unified. And, and once he comes to this place in chapter 12, I want you to understand something, that, that up until this point, he has talked of God's wrath. He has talked of man's sin. He has talked of judgment. He has talked of separation. And here in chapter 12, he has this place where he doesn't talk about those things, but kind of segues and moves. And instead of talking about wrath and judgment, he now begins to talk of mercy and worship. So that's the topic this morning. That's how we got there. And if you're able to this morning, I want to invite you to stand with me as we just read a few of these verses. Now, as we dive in, I want you to understand I, I, I'm going to be teaching this uh, passage, chapter 12, chapter, verses, <laughs> chapter 12, verses 1 uh, through 21. But I'm not going to do all of that this morning. Uh, I'm just going to cover a few of these verses. Next week, we're going to go a little bit further into the text. So for this morning, we read God's holy word here. Chapter 12, verse 1, book of Romans. I appeal to you, therefore. Therefore? Why is it Therefore? Everything I just kind of just stated. I appeal to you, therefore, because of what I've written previously. Brothers, this is to Christians, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone, everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each one according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. And so, Lord, here we are in this building, which is just a place for your people to gather. Because truly the church is not a building, but it is its souls. Lord, we are your building. We are your temple. So allow us as a group of people to hear from your word this morning and help us to be more compassionate, more kind, more gracious, more merciful, more worshipful people. We trust you for that, Lord, this morning. In Jesus' name, the church said, amen. You may be seated. Thank you. Well, 
in full disclosure, I've recognized something about the position in which I hold. First of all, we know that the position of a pastor, it should be a position of service. I had a conversation with someone the other day about, probably about 10 years ago, there was a really big church movement, church planting movement. Some of you aren't even aware that this occurred, but there was a whole, uh, a whole group of young guys who were planting churches and planting churches and uh, it was funny, I was talking about this with another gentleman in church just on the deck today. He had no idea that I had this in my notes or that I was planning to talk about this, but they, they talked about during that season of church planting that what you had was a lot of young guys who were zealous to serve the Lord, but were impatient to wait for the senior pastor ahead of them to retire. And so a lot of these young men got into uh, what we would call Uh, entrepreneurial classes. In fact, one of the books that the church launching group of individuals launched was a book called The E-Myth. I don't know if any of you have, anyone ever read a book called The E-Myth? So some of you are familiar with it. If you're a business owner of any kind, it's kind of considered uh, a great text for small businesses. So this is literally one of the books that they began to give church planners in this season was a book on how do you build a small business? And what you ended up with was a lot of young guys who loved God could preach really well, actually, great communicators. But but before they were even good communicators, they were better marketers. They knew how to market. They knew how to strategize. And and they filled buildings. They filled churches that were dying. They filled schools. uh, they, They filled gymnasiums. And what we're now seeing, based off this church planning movement, a lot of these churches now, they're struggling in a lot of different ways. And the main way is because these young guys learned to promote They learned to grow because the mission was growth, but they didn't learn how to shepherd. They didn't learn how to pastor, how to care for people. Uh, And and so you had all these people gathering in a building, but they they weren't hearing and learning how to grow as a person, the idea of sanctification. If you remember several weeks back, we started this message on the reality of holiness, right? I mentioned that earlier, that holiness matters. I say all of this because part of the church of God, it's great for us to have good theological, sound theological mindsets and to know our doctrine and to take good classes and to know what it is that God's called us to do. But if we don't allow God to shape and mold the very being and the soul of who we are, then we miss out on so much that God has to offer us. So we say, what do we build our life on? If I had a young child in front of me, I would tell them that we build our life upon what Paul has been saying throughout the entirety of Romans up to this point. You have to know the gospel. And the gospel is this reality that Jesus saved sinners while they were sitting. Christ doesn't come to die for you. He didn't come to save you because of your righteousness, because you had a, a good night's rest and you had a really good day the day before and he just decided, you know what, I'm gonna, I'm gonna bless you because he doesn't do it that way. He gives us mercy. Look at what Paul says. I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by what? His mercy. This is the first point in the message. If we're going to build our life on something, friends, we have to build our lives on the mercies of God. And that leads us to the next question. I hope you've asked it. Well, what is the difference between mercy and grace? Because we should build our lives upon the grace of God. The grace of God has to do with gift giving, right? God is gracious to you. And mercy is really closely associated with grace. In fact, I I might argue theologically, in God's entirety, you can't have mercy without grace. And some theologians love to, and I'm one of them, like to have discussions about what came first, mercy or grace. And some of you are like, well, I've never thought that one would come before the other. And that's okay. 
Because what I want you to wrap your mind around at this point is that God's grace has to do with him giving you a gift. Mercy has to do with him withholding punishment. Withholding punishment. That's one way to say it, one way to define it. So what you can say here is Paul says, I'm appealing to you by the mercies of God. In essence, he could be saying, I'm appealing to you because you have been given mercy. I'm appealing to you by the mercies of God. So initially what he's trying to get you to understand is, first of all, you have to place yourself in the place of you need mercy in order to thrive as a human being, which means that you deserve punishment. You deserve wrath. You deserve judgment. These are all things that Paul says in Romans because of your sin, because of your brokenness, because of the fact that there's something wrong. That's what sin is. Sin is defined as the thing that we all know is missing the mark, which then asks the next question, what's missing the mark? And just so you know, sin is missing the mark, but it's not missing the mark on all of the things you do wrong. Ultimately, the, the greatest sin is missing the mark of unification, intimacy with God. That's missing the mark. So God gives us mercy instead of punishment. Another way to say it is mercy is God treating us better than we deserve. Back to the question... <laughs> about if you were sitting with a young child and you said, I want you to build your life upon the gospel, how many of you, and I have to be honest, I don't know, I just feel so incredibly, I I fall so short of this. (laughs) Because my natural bend when I know someone deserves wrath isn't to give them mercy. When I know what they deserve is wrath, right? I mean, I'd be cruising down 80 and someone cuts me off. I don't go, treat them better than they deserve. I go, I'm going to show them. I pump down on that right, right pedal. You know that one? The gas. And I gun it and I get in front of them and I cut them off in the name of Jesus. And they can see the back sticker that says, here Bible church on there. And everyone knows who I'm living for, right? <laughs> and I roll down my tinted windows with my Sear Bible hat. Screw you, buddy. <laughs> like, there's no gospel. Mercy is just leave it be. Don't give them what they deserve in conversation and relationship. And this idea of mercy and grace is really found in the prodigal son. I mean, the best way you could define it with the prodigal son, uh, this is from Max Licato. Mercy gave the prodigal son a second chance. That's mercy. You messed up. You spent the father's inheritance. You started hanging out with pigs and, and, and spending your life in all kinds of lavish, unhealthy ways. And, and the father gives him a second chance. That's mercy. Second chance is mercy. Grace is the father giving him a feast. Both are important. See, God doesn't just say, I give you mercy. I give you a second chance. Grace says, I'm also going to feed you and I'm going to care for you. Right? It's a kind of compassion with favor. And so Paul says, okay, therefore, but notice, notice how he uses his words. Do you see the first, it's actually the second word in the first sentence. I what? I appeal. You know why that's so (laughs) heavy for me? Because I'm not a person who appeals. I'm a person who commands. Right? There's one way to parent. One way to parent is to command. How many of you are pretty good at that? Don't touch. Don't do. (laughs) You can do this. You can't do that. Paul, as a loving father, uses even merciful language in the text. 
Because he could say, and he does in other places, I, I command you to live a certain way. But that's not the way of Paul. That's not the way of church. He's appealing. I appeal to you. And I, I, I want to sit down with you and have a conversation. And again, Paul is highlighting this idea of mercy. And, and, and he's stating to, to those who are reading this letter, there's a way in which you can live that's merciful and compassion. There's a way in which you can uh, abide in God. And, and I'm appealing to you, not, not commanding, not guilting, not condemning, but, but appealing to you. How many of you parent like that? Oh, man, that stings. That hurts me. I had a situation with one of my kids last night. I, uh, and I was a part why I was so emotional in my first message because I know, and not that it was that big of a deal, but it just was one of those things. You know, as a parent, we're like, it maybe wasn't as big of a deal to them, wasn't as big of a deal to the home, but you walked away and you just went, ugh, why? I mean, have you ever just, I have this thought probably more often than I'd like to admit. I sometimes will lay in bed and I'll have a vision of me running away from me. But you know what? Wherever I run, I follow myself. I can't seem to get away from me. I think God understands that, and that's why he's saying be merciful. Because notice, we're going to go more into this next week, but I want you now to go into the next segment, segment and just peruse verses 8 through 20. Just take a look at these actions of what it is that we're to be. As, again, we're supposed to be his church. And his church is supposed to practice mercy. And notice what he says in regards to mercy. Again, treating people better than they deserve. Right? He tells us the one who does acts of mercy in Romans 12, 8. But he also goes on and says, contribute to the needs of the saints, verse 13. Bless those who persecute you, verse 14. Weep with those who weep, verse 15. Associate with the lowly, verse 16. Repay no one evil for evil, verse 17. Never avenge yourselves, verse 19. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. That's Romans 12, 20. The, the whole passage is just saturated with treating people better than they deserve, amen? If the church of God is gonna glorify God, then the people of God have to be people of mercy. And if we're gonna be people of mercy, that means that we are constantly doing anything that we can to extend acts of mercy and compassion towards people who don't deserve acts of mercy and compassion. The definition of mercy is to give it to somebody who doesn't deserve mercy. I know it's complicated. By the mercies of God, and he gives us the, the, this language that if we will glorify God in mercy, God will be glorified. Romans 15, 9. Listen to what he says in Romans 15, 9. Just a couple chapters to the right. You can look at it so you know I'm not making it up. <clears throat> he says, in order that the Gentiles might glorify God. This is just, a, again, another fancy way of saying in order that those in the world who don't know God would come to a place of glorifying God. Let me say it again. In order for those who don't know God, it's essentially what a Gentile is in the, old, in, the, in the New Testament. For those who don't know God, in order for them to know God, that they would glorify God, he literally says in Romans 15, 9, they will glorify him for his mercy. Essentially what he's saying, in essence, to some degree or another, 
is that in order for the world outside of our walls, in order for Truckee, California, the Tahoe Basin, South Lake, Reno, wherever it might be, in order for those people to come to a place where they will glorify God, the people of God must be known as merciful people. There's another way that Jesus says it in John 13, 35. I know you're familiar with the verse, but again, do we live by it? That's the question. All people will know that you're my disciples by what? It's another form of mercy. See, the world sees that we're different. And you hear me sighing because I'm, I'm in a place in my sanctification where the divisions within Christian, the Christian church in America and now the world, the division sickens me. My heart is breaking. Because of what I see I mean, he gets us. Does that trigger anything for anybody? Or he saves us. And now that's the debate. Does he get us or does he save us? I'm just happy Jesus' name is being mentioned, y'all. You know, I, I, does he get us? The answer is yes. Is it the full message? No. Try putting in a full message in 45 minutes like I do every Sunday. I fall short on everything. I'm just happy someone's talking about my Jesus. I understand it's missing context. The commercial wasn't for you. I know that's a shocker. It's for somebody who's never heard of Jesus, never understood of Jesus, doesn't know that God even exists. In fact, the whole cultural narrative is God doesn't exist. And now you get a 30-second plot for someone to say, God does get you. Mm, that's good, man. Because now I'm going to get somebody to visit. In fact, what we've done for Easter, because we're already planning for Easter, our tagline for Easter is, does he get us? Let's just try to answer the question. <laughs> he does, and I don't want to get into the nuance of it. I know that the commercial lacks certain things, but my point in all of it is, why do Christians find it so joy-filled to beat up on other Christians? I hate it. Listen to what Paul says in Mercy in Philemon chapter 1, verse 8. Small book. Essentially, Paul is writing to a slave owner because his slave has ran off. The slave owner's slave has ran off. And he wants his slave back. So Paul writes the slave owner and basically says, let him be free. For Christ has set you free. Let your slave be free. And listen to what he says to Philemon. Chapter 1, verse 8. Though I'm bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required. Do you hear it? <laughs> Paul himself says, I am bold enough. I have it in me. I'm a leader. I know right from wrong. I know when I can be harsh. I know when I can be soft. But listen to what he says. I'm bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required. That's Paul's way of basically saying, I know what I'm telling you is right and you happen to be wrong. But he says this again, the Christian ethic, verse 9, Philemon 1. Yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. Not command. This is what he says now. I, Paul an old man, and now a prisoner for Christ. I mean, this just touches my heart, man, because I can almost, I almost see Paul's sanctification in the text. 
that at one time, Paul, he, he makes mention of the text, I'm now an old man. I have a feeling that we could probably look at some of Paul's earlier writings and there's probably a little bit more of an edge to it, a little bit more of an oomph to it, a little bit more of a, 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 of a young man's game, if you will. And that's not necessarily bad. That's scripture. We need that. But now here he is as an old man. And it gives me hope because what this tells me is if I get beaten up enough, criticized enough, knocked down enough, and I end up in prison, then then and finally then I might come to this place like Paul as an old man where I no longer command or thrust my right and wrong upon you, but instead I appeal to you. It's like a loving grandpa, isn't it? He's not trying to change you because... This is what happens as you grow older, I think. I think. <laughs> you start realizing how real powerless you are to change anybody. And then you begin a process as a Christian to just say, well, I'm going to appeal to you. And then I'm going to let the Lord teach you. And God is faithful to do that. Let me segue into the next point. Hopefully you've gathered to this degree that is important that if we're going to be disciples, we have a love for one another that is practiced out in compassion, which is just a, another way of, you know, of saying we treat each other better than you deserve. How do we do that, though? I mean, sometimes I, I get frustrated with Scripture because it doesn't always just tell me exactly what to do. Sometimes there's a lot of narrative. You, like, you see the story of the prodigal son or the story of the woman at the well, and, the, and, and you can find all kinds of great application and beautiful teaching and a picture of who Jesus is, but doesn't always just tell you what to do. Uh, and so, so we come to this place now, though, where I think Scripture does tell us what to do, how to be a person that is merciful, how to be a person that lives Romans chapters 1 through 11. What does he say? I appeal. What is the appeal? The merciful appeal. He moves from mercy to worship. And I believe that the, 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 the connection of the two are important. A merciful life and a life that focuses on mercy will be a life that's filled with worship. And the reason that this is important is in, in order for you to be a person of compassion and a person of mercy, you have to look through Romans chapter 12, verse 8, all the way through 20. Remember that list I read you, right? Contribute to the needs of the saints. Bless those who persecute you. The only way that you can finally get to this place of being a merciful person is to see how radical God's mercy has been upon you. And if you just look at those verses and put yourself in them and put Jesus in them, you'll see the great mercy of God that he's practiced towards you. Once you see that, you'll practice it towards others. So what does he say? Contribute to the needs of the saints. Has God not been faithful to contribute to the saints, both through the Old Testament all the way out of Pharaoh into the promised land, and even faithful to you. Have you not seen God's contribution to the needs of the saints? How about this? Bless those who persecute you. The Bible literally says that it was my sins that nailed him to the cross. It was my sins that not only nailed him to the cross, it was my sins that kept him on the cross. I have done nothing but persecute my Savior. I am a persecutor of the most holy God in attitude and in deed, especially before becoming a Christian. And then he says, bless those who persecute you. Though I have persecuted Christ, even at times unintentionally, he still blesses me, man. I'm still here. I had an attitude last night before going to bed. If I was God, I'd have taken me home. You ever had one of those days? Hey, Lord, I think we're done. 
Come on, you never felt that way? Hey, uh, life's, but at a certain point, you realize life is, a, is it's hard. He goes on, listen, weep with those who weep. If you've ever lost a loved one as a Christian, you know that God is near to those who are brokenhearted. Associate with the lowly. You are the lowly. Repay no one evil for evil. You gave God evil. He didn't give you evil. Never avenge yourselves. He hasn't done that. And if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. And he's given us the food that we need, the spiritual food that we need. For Jesus is the bread of life, and he is the water that we drink that will never thirst again. Can you not see the compassion and mercy of God that he's given you day after day, moment by moment, even right now? And, and it's only to the degree that you see the compassion of God on you that you'll be able to give other people compassion. See, if you're not a recipient of mercy, you can't be a giver of mercy. So how do we do it? Present your body as a living sacrifice to the Lord. Remember what I said in the beginning? I wanted to talk to you about mercy and worship. Mercy will lead to worship. And the kind of worship that God is talking about now is he says when he says, present your body to me, he's saying present your entirety to me. Give all of yourself to me. Right? No one in this room, you've heard me say this before if you've been here for a while, no one outside these doors is what we call worship neutral. Everyone will worship something. And you become what you worship. Right? You, know, you know how we know? This is kind of true because it continually plays out. Um, I'm sure several of you in the room this morning are still mourning your defeat from the Kansas City Chiefs. And my heart is just so moved for you. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Out. And I think probably Niner fans are a little bit more sophisticated than, let's say, Eagle fans. Because last year, if you remember when the Eagles lost the Super Bowl, I, I saw a bunch of videos of, of usually it's, it's, it's younger, aggressive, filled with testosterone men destroying their televisions because the Eagles lost the Super Bowl. Do you know why people do that kind of stuff? Because they are crucifying their Savior because their Savior didn't live up to their expectations. And every single year, as a football fan, I get to watch the whole cycle of worship begin and end. Right? My team is the Chargers. We just hired our new Savior, Harbaugh, who was born of the Virgin, Michigan. And he's coming over to what is now L.A. And, and, and everyone's like, look, he's going to bring us to the mountain. And you know what? If he doesn't, he will be crucified. He will be buried. And unlike Jesus, he will not return. <clears throat> My point in that silly illustration is just to state that no one gets to escape worshiping. You worship something. And then Jesus himself actually states in the Gospels, you actually become what you worship. Another way to say it is you become what you look at. You become what you gaze at. You see, this is why Jesus literally says, you, you can hear, but you're deaf. You can see, but you're blind. It's Jesus' way of saying you've become what you worship. Because what you worship is false idols, dead beings. They don't live, they don't breathe, they don't talk, they don't hear. And so you have become like them. You're spiritually dead and you can't see. Your heart is hardened. And in order for you to come to a place where it's awakened, you have to worship something that's alive. And the only one that's worthy of worshiping that's alive is Christ himself. So he says, present yourself. 
And he's not commanding, is he? He's appealing. Would you give your body, your entire being to the Lord? Right, and he's not talking about those of us who are all able-bodied. Right? This, is, this is your entirety, whether you're in a wheelchair or, or whether you're on, on crutches <laughs> or whether you're able-bodied completely. It's, it's all of yourself to the Lord. Why? Because, because God wants your body to be an extension of giving mercy. Your body is to be an act of living sacrifice, which is a picture off of the Old Testament. And, and when they... When they had an offering, a sacrifice, they killed it. It didn't live any longer. And, and now God is saying, listen, you don't need to be the ultimate sacrifice because the ultimate sacrifice has already been sacrificed. So now I'm encouraging you to be a sacrifice, but a sacrifice that's willing to be alive, that, that presents as Romans six thirteen, previous chapter to this, few chapters, says, do not present your members, your body. The word members is for body parts. And specifically, he's talking about all the body parts, all of them, the unmentionables included. That we would use our bodies for mercy and worship, that we wouldn't use them as an extension of sin. So he says, don't present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. That's unholy stuff. Romans 6.14 then says, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are under, you're not under law, but you're under grace. He goes on and says, your body's a temple. You're not your own. You were bought with a price. Which leads us into this place of understanding that, that, that we have to realize that, that as a living sacrifice, a moving sacrifice, we have to pay attention to what the members of our body are doing. This includes every act of your living body. And that your living body that you have, your hands and your feet and your eyes would be used to glorify God. That your body would be an instrument to do righteousness and not sin. But specifically that the body would be an extension of treating people better than they deserve. Now Paul, Paul has this great desire that whether he is present or not in Philippians 1.20, that he would see that our lives are worthy of the gospel. Again, though, I said, okay, present your body as a living sacrifice. That, that may seem well and good, and you may leave here and you may focus on what you need to do with your hands and your feet. But I don't, before we close, I want to end with really how you really, really, really make yourself or allow God to make yourself into a compassionate, loving person. How do you build your life on the mercies of God? Well, you present yourself, present your whole body, but he tells us specifically what to do. Because notice, he shows us the connection between our bodies and our souls, which is interesting because, because we now live in a very similar uh, mentality uh, that w- exists in the New Testament, which is what you do with your body doesn't matter because it's not connected to your soul. So that, that whole movement, even in Jesus' day, was you could sleep with whoever you want, you can drink whatever you want, you can do whatever drugs you want because your body's not your soul, it doesn't matter, it, it's irrelevant. But God is basically saying, no, your bodies are connected somehow and what you do with your body is, is, is an outpouring of what's happening in your soul and you can't disconnect the two. So what does he say? Present your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. That's the way to say it. that's your real worship. To not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by what? 
the renewal of your mind. Now what he's basically saying is in order for our bodies to be an extension of mercy, we first have to do something within the mind. And the mind is what it, what it conceives, what it thinks, what, what, it, what is on itself, what is that, whatever is there. This needs to be renewed and it needs to be renewed every single day. So have you ever thought about what you think about? <laughs> I'm going to steal a little bit from uh, pastor and author Mark Comer. There's a book called Practicing the Way. Uh, and in that book, he has a little segment in there that is uh, about contemplation, what we do with the mind. The Bible actually has a lot to say about contemplation and renewing the mind. Listen to what 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17 says. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Anybody want freedom? What is freedom? I mean, that's an interesting topic. Real quickly, the freedom he's speaking of here is that you would be free from the love of self and living life just for yourself. That you would be free to live for others. So he says, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. You're, you're not having to live for you anymore. And we all, listen to what he says, we all, with unfailed, unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, and we're being transformed. Notice that was in the text. Notice it's also in the text in 2 Corinthians. It's both in Romans. It's here that we would be transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So he says, you want freedom? Do you want freedom? Well, we want to renew our mind. That's what Romans says. How am I going to remo renew my mind? Well, I think Corinthians gives us a little bit of a better definition in scriptures, interpreting scripture. How do we do this you contemplate. Notice in 2 Corinthians, if you happen to be there, it says, we with unfailed face behold. Behold. Do you know what the word there is? Contemplate. To think deeply about. To gaze at. Here's what he's saying. You are what you look at. And what the encouragement is for us to renew our minds is to sit before the Lord in his presence and to see him face to face. The veil has been lifted, it says in Corinthians, and you can see the Lord. And the word here, contemplating, the word here, beholding, is also associated with like a mirror. And as you look into a mirror, you see you, but you also see Jesus. So you see the true you through the eyes of the true Savior, both for good and for bad. Behold, one way Comer talks about this, he says, when you have a thought that enters into your mind, when you're talking about renewing your mind, just ask the question, are you a friend or are you a foe? I do this in the sauna on a regular basis until someone interrupts me. Some other sweaty guy who wants to talk in there. I don't know why. And I'll be sitting in there and I'll be praying and I'll be thinking and I'll have this thought, you know, you're not really good at this. And I'll just think, okay, Lord, is that thought from you? Is that a thought of, from the Spirit? Is, is that something that's unhealthy? Go through the process and application as you leave this place uh, this morning uh, of doing the work of saying, okay, am I sitting with the Lord and am I renewing my mind under scripture and allowing God to teach me in my brain to not think the way that I'm, I'm not supposed to think this way? And, and there's a whole psychological study on what's called mirroring. Have you ever heard of this? Happens every Sunday for me. If you walk up to the stairs on, on the morning, I'm gonna go, morning, morning. 
And you're going to go, you're not going to go, good morning. But you're going to go. We mirror what we see. Psychologically, it's inevitable. We typically mirror the people we're around. The attitude starts to duplicate. The text is essentially saying the same. If you look to Jesus, you will mirror Jesus. But if you keep looking at yourself and you keep thinking like the world, notice it says, it says, don't be conformed to the world. This means that you should do some thinking about this song I'm listening to. Is it teaching me truth? Is it sharing with me my real identity in Christ? Or is it taking me further away from my identity? You have to think this way in regards to what you drink, what you eat, the kind of television shows that you watch. We're not talking about legalism. We're talking about an appeal. Because there's tremendous freedom in Christ to do all of those things. I love sports. I love football. But I think that you can tell by the way that I talk about it, I'm very aware of how most men treat football. So I enjoy it for the sport that it is. I chew up the fish and spit out the bones. Because I know that in the world, I can't expect the world to ever mirror the real realities of Jesus. And then I started thinking about this and thought, you know what? I probably need to be a little bit more clear on this for some of us because I know like during my week, I spend a chunk of my week looking through scripture and some of you may not be doing that. And so the world is actually not not a, a, a thing that you're trying to reach. It's conforming and transforming you into something that God's never intended you to be. And so I have to encourage you. I have to use the words of Paul. I appeal to you. Let your mind be saturated with the person of Christ. And think to yourself, what does it look like to look to the Lord? Because Jesus isn't so concerned about your actions. He wants your heart. How do you give him your heart? You have to sit with him. You have to look at him. You have to gaze upon him. What you look at is what you'll become. So God's calling us to be a people of mercy. And the only way that we can be people of mercy is if we worship God. And we allow God to transform our minds. And the way that we do that is by looking to Jesus and looking at his words and not letting the lies of the enemy to tell us something that's not true. And so by the mercies of God, I appeal to you to present your bodies as an instrument of righteousness to the Lord and to allow your minds to be saturated with the love of Christ that he has for you, the love of God that is found in Christ you. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your willingness to be so patient with us. I know, Lord, Ephesians, we were there not too long ago, tells us that we would be renewed in the spirit of our minds. Scripture also tells us that your mercies are new every morning. So we just praise you for that. And maybe this morning we need to kind of do what David did. Regardless of what the song may be, as we are about to sing, whatever our voices may say, let our hearts cry out like David. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me your work. 
And we trust you for it. And we worship you because of it. In Jesus' name, amen. Family, let's stand together. Let's sing these truths together, be reminded.